Welcome to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Hello and welcome to The Common Bridge. This is the fiercely nonpartisan podcast and YouTube TV channel where we talk about the issues of the day, the opportunities of the moment, and most importantly, what some policy solutions might be. Today, we have our guest, Sean Michael Pigeon. We're going to talk about something that doesn't often get discussed, and that has to do with standardized testing and their role. So, Sean, welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm so happy that you're with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So standardized testing was the gold standard for college admissions for many, many years. Now, in recent years, there's been claims about discrimination bias in the test itself that disadvantages minorities and students from less economically prosperous areas. Some colleges have dropped standardized testing as a means of measuring college aptitude entirely. Some school systems are following suit. So today our guest, Sean Pigeon, is going to discuss this from his perspective. And this is an angle that you probably haven't considered yet. I anticipate some education and perhaps some policy ideas. Sean, our audience at the Common Bridge likes to know a little bit about our guests. So just tell us a little bit, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? And what were your early days like? Thank you so much for having me. So I was raised in Texas. I, I was raised in a relatively low-income family, and my father was a teacher at a local private school, so I was able to go there. But there's been a shift towards, I'm talking about the, the standardized testing that we currently use, which is the SAT or the ACT for, for college admissions, that we've been using since 1926, that they disadvantage minorities or they disadvantage low-income individuals. And part of something that I've written in USA Today recently was arguing that while these disparities do exist and they are real and there are some barriers, that eliminating all of these sort of hard metrics from the admission process would disadvantage people like me and would disadvantage low-income individuals because those metrics give people a chance to succeed and they do give it a chance for there to be economic and social mobility. So that's really that's, what I'm trying to get at with some of this. That's wonderful. What area in Texas were you from? I'm from Dallas, Fort Worth. So in the Northern region, it's a, I'm hop, skip and a jump away from Dallas. Where are you going to college right now? Right now I'm a, I'm a senior at Yale university. I'm oh. studying political science there. So Wonderful. So uh, tough to get admitted, sure. tough to make it to your senior year. And I'd imagine uh, some sharp elbows being thrown in those political science classes. Very much so. Very much so. I'd like to say there's a, there's a lot of politics in the political science department. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, But look, college is supposed to be fun too. So what are you doing for fun? You're playing any sports or music or what's your social life like? Yale has a very robust political realm. So I'm sort of involved in that. I'm involved with the Yale Political Union, for instance. And there's a, there's a lot of friendships that are made there. Um, I will say I, off campus, I, I do a lot of weightlifting and uh, that's that's quite, it, it, it gets some of the stress out, you know what I mean? Because yes. there are a lot of, there are a lot I, of I, sharp I, elbows. It, it was leg day for me today. Okay. I'm just sitting here basking in it. So I, it's I, good. I, leg day is always tough. <laughs> yes. So you did write a very interesting opinion piece in the USA Today. What caused you to write the piece? And I'm going to try to bring it up here and I know we'll have a link to it at richardhelpy.com. The title of it is Don't Blame the Test. Getting rid of standardized testing means 
punishing poor students. And uh, I thought it was a great piece. And that's what caused us to, to reach out to you. But, yeah. but what caused you to write it? Yeah. So about a year, a year and a half ago, I got involved with a local magnet school in New Haven called East Rock. There I teach elementary school kids about journalism and writing. And, th- and that's really where I got interested in the politics of the education system, because those 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 kids are are wonderful, and I love working with them. But there are a lot of difficulties that that they face in in achieving academic potential. And one of the one of the common refrains that I hear at, at Yale, particularly, is the idea that the standardized testing and the way in which we're doing admissions process is, is fundamentally flawed, and therefore we need to to scrap the whole system. Whenever I hear the phrase "scrap the whole system" or you know we need to revamp everything, my ears sort of perk up, and I think that like using my own background and and the place that I come from, that I wanted to to put out a different perspective. That instead of blaming the tests or or blaming the students themselves, that there is a real chance for people like me and for people from those communities to reach up and get their social mobility because there's sometimes some fatalism that occurs where people feel like because the system's rigged or they're told the system is rigged that they can't move up. And I think that that, that itself is kind of a dangerous well, mindset. I, I, I can under, understand that in that one of the charitable causes near and dear to my heart is the uh, mentoring of students, many of whom have never had a family member go to higher education, heavily minority weighted, maybe 60%. But finding out that if there are standards and with the right coaching and such, that they can achieve. But in your article, you say activists argue standardized tests must be discontinued to dismantle white supremacy. And look, it worked for you, but I think you're making an argument along a class line versus a racial line. So mm-hmm. what kind of feedback have you gotten? What kind of reception has people given you pro or con? Well, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, I've gotten some people that have reached out to me that are uh, in favor of what I wrote and are against it. It's actually interesting. I got two high schoolers that messaged me, and one of them said that what I had said was really empowering to them and that they wish that they'd heard more of that when they were going through their admissions process. And then I heard it from another junior who's going through the process themselves right now, who said that they completely disagreed with what I said. So I think that there's like a there's split opinions even amongst um, high schoolers themselves, but one of the reasons why I think this is an important topic to discuss is because I do think that the overwhelming emphasis right now is on racial discrimination. And while I think a lot of that gets caught up in the kind of class problems that some people from low-income communities have, I think that it's evidenced by the numbers, at least, that the class distinctions here are the ones that are driving most of this difference. So, for instance, the people with come from families from the bottom 20th percentile, so people making under 20K a year, historically score the worst on these standardized tests, whereas people who make uh, from families $200,000 and more score in the highest quintile. And sure. that's kind of, un- in some ways, unsurprising because tutors and people who have those kinds of means are able to spend more time learning the system. But I think that focusing too much on the problems of academic sorting don't allow us to look at some of the benefits of people not going, for instance, to either the best schools, but they are going to and they are raising their their standard and they're raising their lot in life. And those are really important success stories to highlight. I understand what you're saying, although I, I don't think it can be denied that some of what the critics will say about standardized testing is that you're trying to measure a student's readiness for higher education, but their experience in life is going to impact that. So you have a young person that grows up in rural Montana, 
And part of that test is how to get around New York riding the subway system. Or, you know, you take an urban child out of Houston and you ask questions that, you know, someone that grows apples in the Pacific Northwest might know. I can see where the a cultural bias in the test does come from where people originate. Uh, that seems to make sense, doesn't it? Of course it does. And there, there's a paradigmatic example of this in the SAT itself, which is that there used to be an analogies part of the SAT, where they had this question that said, a runner is to a marathon like an oarsman is to what? And if a person doesn't know about rowing, so for instance, I don't know anything about rowing. I've never been on a sailing team. I, I like It would be very difficult to answer that. And in fact, we did see that there was a big disparity between people that were of minorities, people of color weren't able to answer that question because they didn't have that context. However, what we're seeing is that one, a lot of the SAT itself has been redesigned to try to minimize those effects. So there's been an importantly like like driven by the SAT and within internal reviews to make sure that those cultural biases don't rear themselves as much in the test. But also that the majority of the disparity is driven by the math section and not by the vocabulary and not by the reading sections. And I think that at that point, we can start looking to what are the educational systems that people are having when they're in elementary school or in high school that's driving some of these differences rather than assigning the blame to cultural or to racial differences that I think sometimes obscures the problem. Well, I, I think that's a very valid point. And I, I think you say that in your article in USA Today, you say that it's less about the test and more about high school's failure to properly educate. I mean, I can tell you something I've witnessed personally, uh, Wayne State University, which is a state university in Detroit, Michigan, the number one class they had for students coming out of Detroit public school system was remedial math. I'm talking basic arithmetic. And a couple of professors took it upon themselves to teach higher math to Detroit public school students. And given the opportunity to learn and somebody motivated to teach them, they were amazing. They were blue past me and I'm above average in math. Sure. So your, what your point is, and I think you've made it in your article, is that blaming the test isn't helping anyone and that math is math. Yeah. And, and I would also say that when we say the word standardized tests, we need to be a bit more specific about what we mean, because there's two different types of tests. There's achievement tests, which are the kind of tests that we take in high school that is, you know, have you read the book? <laughs> uh, you know, what, what was the main character's name? What was his mother's name? Things to that effect. And then there's aptitude tests, which are like the SAT and the ACT, which are theoretically projecting performance. So it's not about what you know, it's theoretically about what, you do, what you're supposed to do, be able to do in the future. But those aptitude tests are built on achievement tests. Like you first have to have enough information about math to be able to assess a person's you know, ability to do it in the future. And so I do think that there's a real lacking in those kind of basic foundational work in order to be able to, for the test, for the aptitude test to be able to work, we have to first address these achievement problems. So um, more more yeah. like, so if I could draw the parallel then, an aptitude test might be more akin to you know, measuring a student athlete and mm -hmm. whether they can run and jump and have strength and vision and those types of things. That's, mm -hmm. you know, they think that person would be a good athlete. And right. then how did they actually do when they competed? Is that yes. 
kind of the, the parallel. Is that a good parallel? Very much so. In the NFL, they have the tape, which is what you've done, right, in college. And then they have the combine. Right, which is where they measure the whether how fast person runs, their lateral quickness, and that's very much more the aptitudes, which is how much can we predict this person going into the future. But if a person was poorly trained by their coaches and throughout time, it's going to have an impact on their ability to run those drills. There was a very interesting piece that came out, a news article that came out that's to your point earlier about Wayne State, which is that a public school in Baltimore, the GPA of the students there was so low that a person with a 0.13 GPA, which is they had passed three classes in four years, um, was still in the 62nd percentile of wow. students there. And that puts people at a real disadvantage when coming at these aptitude tests for colleges, because it just doesn't put them in a position to succeed. And I think that that's really where a lot of our focus needs to be had. Right. And I think you've, you've made the point in your article that tests aren't designed to be pleasant. They're stressful. They're hard. And I know that my experience in mentoring young people is that those that work hard and achieve have a sense of inner satisfaction and build up a core system. But we do need to be attentive to great minds and great talent, no matter what their starting point is. And so I think well, mathematics, okay, that's reasonably easy to say, yep, that's objective, right? Unless things get really out of hand, two plus two is four. Physics works, the way physics works, the airplane flies because of simple math. Those are pretty inarguable. I would hope. You're not going to find an argument for me. <laughs> yeah, I actually tried to get people to agree one time on like the law of gravity and failed. So anything can be can be said. We're pretty divided. But and then let's look at things like geography. Is there a racial or a class way to ask where Russia is located on a map or what the capital of Kansas is? Is there really a difference? And And is that part of the test, that kind of basic world knowledge? I think that where we would find some of that coming up would be in the essay portions of the test, for instance. So the essay portions of the test are where a person's general ability to write is being assessed. And there are certain, perhaps some metrics there that would be more difficult to quantify. And so um, having, you know, basic knowledge of the of geography, basic knowledge of, for instance, like the news or political events would be useful. And in that sense, there could be a skewed bias by the reader. If a reader perhaps something like doesn't agree with what a person's writing or doesn't agree with a person's writing style, that could creep up into the tests. But I would mention that not only has the SAT taken measures to do so. So for instance, they're now canceling the writing exam or the writing portion of their exam. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But this move towards saying that academic sorting doesn't help minorities, I think, is a difficult one to swallow in some ways. For instance, there's evidence that if we have um, neutral race, neutral testing, that minorities actually do better. And there is a new study from out in Florida, which said that when they had a, a race neutral testing of math and of linguistic ability and of writing ability, that the number of Hispanic and black students actually doubled because of it. I'm not willing to sort of go down the route that all of these kinds of factors are things that minorities can't master or that people from low income can't master because taking away those opportunities just takes away the ability for people like me that came from low income areas that we can't go to Rome and, you know, we can't go to like, you know, somewhere in a foreign country or go to like expensive internships. Those are really crucial markers for someone to be able to prove themselves. It'd be like if you have somebody that could excel at track some, you know, or wrestling, you know, something that's an individual sport, but they were denied the opportunity to excel because we're not going to keep track of wins and losses and how fast you ran. 
people right. wouldn't begin to get a sense of their own talents. And that's, you know, frankly, part of growing up is to figure out what you're good at and what you're not good at. If you, for example, go to Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. you will not find my name in there. I hadn't looked through them, but I'll take your word yeah, for it. I figured out a long time ago, oh, yeah. I lacked the talent to do that. But look, you know, Sean, one of the touchy areas really has got to be vocabulary because different cultures, different ethnicities use different words, different slangs. If you've ever been to Hawaii, you find they basically mix it all in there. It's English and Japanese and Hawaiian and Chinese and a little Portuguese mm-hmm. and some stuff that I don't know where it came from. But it it's a different way of communicating. So, I mean, vocabulary, you've got to say that's got some kind of class distinction or ethnic distinction or... I mean, is it, could it be argued, hey, a dictionary is a dictionary and we all need to learn the same dictionary? This is a very strong point, right? And I do want to say that there is certainly gains to be made and there are things that we can do better in the future. I don't think that there's a perfect system available, but there is certainly a more perfect system than the current one that we have. So for instance, I do think the SAT publishing a dictionary of the words that they'll use and the words that they think would be likely to show up on the test would be a real step in the right direction. Oh yeah, great because, idea. Because that would allow people to at least have an, a sense of what will or will not be on like a vocabulary portion of the test. Does this spill over into advanced placement courses in high schools? And I know that in recent years, it was determined that the top students in the United States, we could compete with anybody in the world. And we've had, you know, economic challenges from Japan, China, the BRIC countries, and so forth. And it was determined that our top students are among the best in the world. But on the average, we didn't do that great. Is giving up advanced placement that I've read about, like in New York and elsewhere, is that at risk of, you know, even Bill Mars says, at not nurturing our best and brightest? I do think that the situation regarding AP tests is emblematic of this larger problem, but sort of in a unique way. So AP tests are one of those achievement tests that I was talking about earlier, right? Which you try to assess whether a person has learned the material. And um, there's been a move against advanced placement tests for that very reason, right? Which is that they're not evenly distributed across all uh, school districts and that it's difficult for, for instance, a school district like Baltimore, like I was just talking about, to have an AP test program at all, which may disadvantage their chances of getting into higher education. However, there are private elite high schools that don't use AP exams and they don't use AP tests or the they offer a limited selection of them because they already know that universities trust their regular programs. So for instance, Del Barton is a, a essentially a feeder school for a lot of Ivy Leagues, Phillips Exeter or Andover. These are very, very expensive, very, very difficult to get into, you know, almost university light. High-end private college prep schools. Yes, exactly. sir. Exactly. And they don't offer every advanced placement test in the world or every advanced placement course. And if we were to take them all away, then schools like Yale and Harvard and a lot of these other places, even like Georgetown and schools like that would still trust Del Barton and they would still trust Phillips Exeter because they know those schools. They know the people that come out of those schools. But if a place like, you know, where I come from in Texas that I didn't go to a school that anyone knows, the AP test was a real way for me to be able to show that I can do the material and I, I know how to study and I know how to prove some academic excellence. So AP tests are actually a very good example, I think, and I'm glad that you brought it up, of the way in which they do kind of set a level playing field for yeah. even people that aren't at those kind of very, very elite uni- uh, university light or university feeder schools to prove themselves. I have never thought about it that way. And I think that is one of the compelling arguments right there, because I know the school system, it's Wayne Memorial High School, Wayne, Michigan, that I've been involved with for many years. 
our students would not have a chance to distinguish themselves if they could not say, look what I did on my standardized testing. Here's what I did to take advantage of the advanced placement courses that were available to me. And through our program, we've had young men and women going to places like Stanford and Yale and Harvard and the University of Michigan and Penn State and, and so forth, as well as we don't force kids to go toward college, but they're graduating with you know, real work skills, or at least a better sense of being able to achieve a goal. I want to kind of shift a little bit here. You make a point, and I think it's a really powerful one that the rich parents, you know, people that are connected, it doesn't matter what the standards are. They're coming, right? It doesn't matter if it's a test or holistic. In fact, I would think not taking the test might be an advantage if their child maybe wasn't qualified. I would say very much so. Yes. I mean, it's a little bit like looping back around to schools like Exeter. 30% of people that go to Exeter go to an Ivy League college after they graduate. And it's no surprise, I think, that in the recent years, we've seen families get busted for literally bribing admissions officers. Yeah, right, right. Like, literally creating false slots in like lacrosse teams or track teams in order to be able to slot these people in. It's a natural parental urge to want to do well and have one's children do well. And you know, I'm not going to fault uh, the urge itself, but those kinds of problems are going to crop up, I think. And I think they'll crop up with more regularity if the entire system is based on a holistic, you know, soft skills sort of measurement because, you know, the University of um, Los Angeles, so UCLA, had over 165,000 applicants to their undergraduate program last year. I mean, that's so many people that they're they're looking for measurements that are kind of easy for the admissions council to look at. They're looking for heuristics. And and one of those is going to be whether one has gone to, you know, a, a prestigious high school, but if it's not, if it's not that, it's going to be something else. And I think that standardized metrics are a lot more of a firmer ground for people like me and for people that are even of, of a different minority or a different race that than the majority to to kind of grasp and get their feet on. You know, that makes sense uh, that UCLA could look at it and say, look, we have this student here, went to this great school and they graduated. So I know where they probably can be okay. They look mm-hmm. at someone else here that maybe went to a disadvantaged place. They, ah, I don't know, but wow, look at those SAT scores and look at the ACT and look at this essay. I don't know how they did it, but they're ready for us. So I think you make a strong point for a way for a disadvantaged student to maybe get noticed. I also wanted to flag a little bit that there are places in the University of California system that are thinking of doing away with the A through F grading system. I don't think that it's just about the SATs. I don't think my piece is intended to be just about SATs or ACTs. It's about the idea that academic sorting and having a um, a way for, for instance, advanced math classes around the country are being considered for the chopping block. And I think that that's, a, that's also another concern, right? Because it's not just about like one test. This isn't just about giving students one essay to write, right? There's an entire... Um, you know, four years worth of work. And that sure. that really encompasses more of what a student is able to do in high school. But under the auspices of the same arguments that are being made against the SAT are also being made against A through F grading and saying that instead of having, you know, a 4.0 GPA or a 3.5 GPA, we should just do letters of recommendation or, or soft measurement of skills, which mm-hmm. I think is also a dangerous way of, of setting a precedent going forward. Horribly dangerous in that if the philosophy of the instructor that you need the recommendation from. And your point of view, that is a, a deadly collision. 
Also, the thing with uh, A through F, grades are tough, but it also helps people understand that if you're having a hard time grasping mathematics, but your art teacher thinks you're wonderful, that's kind of a clue about where you might want to be spending your time. Similarly, if you're, you know, you're a whiz at math and you're like me, you can't draw, but you're, <laughs> you know, pretty good at math and words. Yeah. That kind of tells you you might want to head in a different direction. You know, Sean, one of the things we, that you said when you close your, your column, I, and I really like this, and I'm just going to read it verbatim if you don't mind, because I think it's so good. You say, no, a student's SAT or GPA is not the only thing that matters. And this is what I really like. Character, leadership, and kindness matter far more in life. I thought that showed a lot of wisdom. And then you go on and say, just because a test doesn't tell us everything about a person doesn't mean it is useless. But if schools abandon these important benchmarks, they will certainly become classist. I think you've laid out a case for that. Sean, what didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have discussed? Well, the only other thing that I would want to, to put out there is that I think that there are ways for us to ameliorate the situation that we're talking about, which is that there are disadvantages that people that come from low-income backgrounds, and there are disadvantages that people come from uh, communities of color or, or minorities have. And there is, I think, a way, though, forward that doesn't just require us to accept the status quo system, which is that... I really think that grade inflation across the nation has happened in a way that is detrimental to a person's ability to stand out. It's pretty well documented that people used to be a C student, that used to be you're an average student, and that now if you're a B plus student, that means you're average, or if you're a B student, it means you're average, right? Um, so that kind of been creeping up over time, and I think that that has kind of devalued the the grading system that we do have and made it so that these individual tests, whether it be the SAT or the AECT, are way more important than they used to be. Right. I remember like my dad talking to me about it and he said, I only took the SAT once and I just kept moving on. So I, I would say that there are ways of getting at this problem in a different way than than some of the um, people that I'm pushing back against. Um, and yeah. I, I, don't, I don't want us to also be fatalistic in the other way of throwing up our hands and saying there's nothing else that we can do. This is the best system that's possible. Right. No, I, I think that you, you strike a lot of balance there. And, you know, we do at long last have a really good discussion about race in America and that we've covered from a number of angles and that there have been groups throughout our history that have been disadvantaged by law. Uh, I mean, during my lifetime, it was perfectly legal to deny a black man or woman public accommodations. You could do that and, and the law enforcement would would back you up because that was that was the law. We were just it's horribly wrong. And these stains take a long time to resolve, but I'm hopeful that we can resolve it through coming together on common policy. And we can resolve it by coming through on what we can agree is a fair standard and a fair shot for everybody to benefit from and participate in the society. And I think that's what your columns in the USA Today said, if I'm not mistaken. I hope I'm not it's very, it's, it's very true. And I totally agree with, with all those points. I think that there is a common ground to be had on this issue. And I think that there's a, a real way to move forward in, in ameliorating these differences over time. It just, it'll take some time, but it's part of a, a broader movement towards a greater equal opportunity, like a real, a more realized equal opportunity. Sean, any closing thoughts for our audience today? Only that I think that this issue is really important, even though I don't think it gets a lot of media coverage. 
and that um, sometimes just having a sensible policy and thinking through these issues in a nonpartisan way is a really important uh, way to, to help our kids achieve the best that they can. Great. This is Rich Helpy. We've been talking today with Sean Michael Pigeon. He was author of a column in USA Today talking about standardized testing and the negative impacts on disadvantaged students as they prepare for college. An interesting perspective. I'm sure we'll generate a lot of great conversation around it. So, Sean, thank you again for being with us. And this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.